0: you gotta see this yeah, yeah. Hey, I remember sandwich, I
1: one thing we are not at the G music podcast is humble and that's how we're going to open up season three episode one a brand new season of the chain music podcast tim culverhouse and brendan murphy back with you after a bit of a blogcation but we are back and we are ready to dive into an exciting time of the sporting year brendan how you doing there, big guy?
2: I'm doing all right. I mean, the Rangers are coming, storming back, so, I mean, that's never fun, but we'll get into that series in a bit with uh, with some help from our friend Arthur Staple over at Newsday. But first, Tim, I, I know you've been watching a lot of the NHL playoffs. I've been watching a lot of the NHL playoffs. Officiating has been a thing, huh?
1: You know, I don't think I have as much of a problem with it as you do. My gripe has primarily been on the players, and that's when we can kind of lead into one of the... the Four series left in the NHL, the, pa- the uh, Caps and the Penguins. But what's been your biggest gripe with the officiating in the postseason so far? I mean,
2: just in general, like, I I mean, I, I watched the highlights of the game last night. I and mean, this is a gripe I've had for a long time with the NHL. And it's like the same thing you have with football. But what the fuck is goaltender interference? Like, I watch a lot of hockey. I have not the slightest idea. I remember watching like Bruins and Islanders and even games between the two teams with you and us like even if it's not about having a dog in the fight, just having completely opposite opinions or even agreeing and then just being shocked. Like last night's game and I think it happened in a couple of the other series, it's just it's a complete roll of the dice. They gotta find a way to to just draw a line one way or the other. I don't I don't really care which way they draw it, if they favor it any contact isn't a goal or if they really make it so it's got to be interfered with. But, but pick one or the other and stick to it.
1: Goaltender interference and also the offsides rule in the NHL with video review are kind of becoming the equivalent well, see, of, I don't think of that's... the NFL's past, of, like the rule of a, pa- a catch. Well,
2: I don't well, think the offsides is fair because, like, I mean, the offsides is, is tricky, I guess, but I feel like more times than not, there's a call. You can at least follow, like, the logic within it. And they try to keep it to a consistent rule. It's not perfect, but at least there's like a standard they subscribe to. Do you have any idea what you're looking for when you watch goaltender interference? At least when you watch off sides, you know kind of what you're looking for. I'm not saying that's perfect by any stretch. It's not. But when I watch a goaltender interference review, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be watching for.
1: The way that I've interpreted the rule, and the, the big thing is that there is an interpretation of the rule, and it's not black and white, which is terrible, but... The biggest thing that I've always paid attention to is the goaltender's position, either in or out of the crease. If they're in the crease, any contact, no goal, goaltender interference, possible penalty if they decided during the uh, flow of action. If it's outside the crease, you can have a little bit more leeway in terms of contact and then where the impetus of the call was. I know you and I really disagreed on a play back in the Bruins Senators series uh, that knocked out a Bruins goal in overtime that they ultimately won. But still, um, that's at least what I'm looking for. But I agree with you 100% where there is way too much interpretation that happens and there's way too much gray area when it comes to what is and what isn't. doesn't matter if the guy was pushed into or bumped into by a guy on the same team. There, there really isn't a, a clear rule that – Officiating crews from game to game and series to series are following, and it hasn't happened yet too egregiously, but a fuck up like that is going to cost the team a series at some point. Oh, I mean,
2: mean last there's night. no
1: way that a review or replay will be able to change it. It's 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 just not a good rule.
2: I mean, listen, it, it, it's going to be an imperfect science because even if they if they do establish you know what the the rule is so to speak it's still going to be interpreted of like you know you you talk about the senators bruins play of i thought i thought the guy on the bruins was was hitting um anderson whether he got checked or not you disagreed so you're always going to have those kinds of things where what's the definition of initiating contact but i would just at least feel more comfortable and more confident in these calls if there was something like you said listen if you want to make it so almost any contact negates the goal i'm not saying that's right But at least then it would be a little bit more, you know, realistic to follow or reasonable to follow when you watched it. And if there was, you know, a a decent amount of contact, you could say, okay, that's probably not a goal. Or on the flip side, make it so someone's really got to like hit the goalie in the crease, you know, make it, you know, an offensive game if you want to do that. And then let me know that the goalies really got to get interfered with, excuse me, to, to in order to draw the call, so to speak.
1: I've always been a proponent of if a goalie leaves the crease, he's, he's not quite fair game, but he's open to contact, especially if he was behind the net. That's my hot, wild, crazy take for, the, for this uh, first episode of season three. But the way that it's worded now leaves too much room for error. And the last thing you need to do is have an interpretation from the officials on the ice and in the war room in Toronto. It can't happen anymore. So I'm with you there. Uh, Do you want to start breaking down series by series here?
2: Yeah, we've been talking about the Oilers and the Ducks for a while, so we'll start there. And I mean, I guess another thing you can talk about with that series is just how weird it's been in terms of the flip-flop of home ice. We saw it in the start of the penns cap series, which we'll get to after this, I guess. But, I mean, it's just weird to see a team like the Ducks, who has played very well at home, lose both of their first two games at home. And then the Oilers, who were pretty good at home this year, too, do the same. I think I wrote about it on Monday, and they were both top ten I want to say I think one team was like sixth and the other was second. So I and mean, you know these are teams that win games at home and neither one of them has done it so
1: far. This series, I think, of the four that are left, has been the most intriguing to me just because of the different styles of play. Mm-hmm. And Edmonton is so fast and the speed they have. And then last night's game four, where the Ducks got a big goal again from Jacob Silverberg, and he's he's playing himself into a big contract down the road, um, but. Ryan Getzloff was a star of that game. Oh, what a behemoth. Oh, he was. But well, that's the thing is that McDavid is going to do something special every game. Getzloff and his puck possession abilities and so many other things, he was behemoth, monster, whatever you want to call him. He was unreal last night and pretty much single-handedly carried the Ducks to that game. And the home ice thing, for a, a young team like Edmonton, they're playing with kind of this blatant disregard. It's kind of like what the Maple Leafs were doing in, in the first round is they haven't been there before, so they're just kind of playing and having fun. The, this Ducks team that seems to be built for a cup run, they were a little tight at home, and then they came into Edmonton and took care of business. And, you know, the, the last three games of this series, I think you have to favor Anaheim, not even because of the home ice advantage, just because of the experience and how they were able to completely shut down Edmonton at home. Excuse me. Put themselves in a better position for the last three games of this series.
2: I'm not at all blaming McDavid, and I don't want to even make it seem that way. But I think it's just going to be interesting to see how he acts in these next three games because you know he has not been carrying this team in the playoffs. He certainly has an underperformed I wouldn't go that far. I mean, the goal he scored a couple nights ago, even yeah. if it was in a losing oh. effort, oh, was oh, hockey boner. Oh. oh, it was just incredible. So I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to say he's. he's Underperformed. This is not a it's McDavid's fault hot take or something like that. But eventually, if he's the Hart Trophy winner, which I suspect he might be this year, he's got to take over a game at least, if not a series. I'm not saying he's got to score, you know, something, some 10 goals in a series. But, you you know, you'd like to see him do something. They've gotten so much scoring, which is not a bad thing, but they've gotten so much scoring from guys like Zach Cassian, um, And you got to wonder if that's going to – continue because eventually you got to think that they need guys like McDavid and Eberle to start uh, putting the puck in the back of the net uh, with some consistency.
1: It's that. And then you also have to throw in Cam Talbot has been playing out of his fucking skull this entire year. I'm waiting for
2: him to collapse. Just like what you
1: said is that he's played 70 plus games. He's now approaching the 85 game mark or 80 game mark over the course of this season. That's a lot of wear and tear on a goalie. So. I know
2: Bobrovsky had a great year. I think uh, Talbot deserves a little bit more shine for the Fesna. Um, I mean, just playing that long and a team that made that much of a jump, I mean, I know you had healthy McDavid, but I feel like he, he overshadows it a little bit sometimes. Playing that many games in front of a blue line that has gotten better but is not, by any stretch, uh, among the best in the NHL is, is crazy impressive.
1: The Edmonton folks that are... Anti Taylor Hall, oh. they had to swallow a big old load last night as Adam Larson coughed that one up. It led to the game-winning overtime goal.
2: It's I hate that comparison. I, I wrote about this a little bit, and listen, I love the Subban, um, the the Weber thing because that is a one-to-one comparison. They're both number one defensemen. You can put those guys up against each other and say what is each doing. I hate the like Taylor Hall Larson thing, like as if as if. Listen, maybe getting Larson was a, a terrible trade for Edmonton. I get the logic behind it. They needed to upgrade their blue line. And listen, and, you know, I heard somebody else make an analogy. If you really need to get something on your car fixed and you, you're going to get gouged by every shop in town, but the thing keeps breaking down on you on the side of the road, eventually you're just going to go pay the absurd price and get your car fixed. And to a certain extent, that's what the Oilers did. But this idea that like, oh man, it's a good thing we got rid of Taylor Hall is like, the most lunatic statement I've heard a fan base make in a long time.
1: Fan base, media, ownership, that's that's a Peter Shrelly move. Oh,
2: I'm not even saying it was the worst move in the world. I get it. If you want to say it was a good move for them, whatever. I'm not even trying to say it was a disaster. But to argue as if like Taylor Hall is the reason they were shitty for the past three years is just one of the better better spin zones I've ever seen. So I guess we'll move out of this before we spend the whole time talking about a series being played 2,500 miles away from us. You you think uh, Edmonton's going to struggle the next three games?
1: I do, just because of the inexperience of that team. And, no, they were riding high after two wins in Anaheim. And then to get two real devastating losses at home like that, I don't think a young team like that can recover. Todd McClellan's a good coach. He did some very strong things with Team North America at the World Cup Hockey. But I think this team's a... A year or two away from being a series cup contender, Anaheim uh, and pulls through.
2: Yeah, I, I think Anaheim is just, between the size and the physicality and the experience, is a tough matchup for the Oilers. It's a very much, I mean, you see it all the time, especially in hockey, a learn-how-to-win-a-series kind of moment. Um, it's a shame, though, because an Oilers-Predators Western final would be enough to keep me up till 1 in the morning, like, for weeks at a time. Um, but before before we get to the Predators and the Blues, let's move on to the Penguins and the Capitals. Which has obviously kind of been the the hot button series between Sid's head injury. Which, as we tape this uh, late on Thursday night, I heard he skated today, so that's obviously positive. I may he, be down. He on...
1: skated alone. So he
2: skated alone. It... I thought. Okay, maybe I saw a picture, an old picture of that. I saw. I thought I saw a picture of him on the ice with a few people, but that could have been you know a picture from a few weeks ago.
1: Yeah, I don't think he was doing any practice drills. I think he was skating uh, on his own before, after everybody else. So. You know, that's a good sign, step in the right direction, to get somebody back out on the ice. That means he's, you know, through the first stage of the concussion protocol. But I'd be stunned if we see him for the rest of this series.
2: We won't focus too much on the hit, because you and I both, you know, wrote about it in your blog on Wednesday. And I think we kind of both have the same thought process on it. Um, but something that you and I were talking about a little earlier, and I know you wanted to get to, is the, uh, the Nick Bonino Oscar-worthy performance, which I, I've looked at a few times, and I know this is a very, like, NHL refs suck moment, I don't really blame the refs, nor do I blame Benito. I think it's just like a a good play by Benito, and you don't really blame the refs. They're going to react to anything that looks like a headshot, and I mean, I thought he got him in the face when I saw it when I was watching the game last night.
1: I was watching the game with my significant other, and I pointed out, we stopped, rewinded it, we freeze-framed it, and she was saying... It hit his, look, his shoulder hits his helmet off the stick, or his shoulder hits his chin off the stick. And I said, no, it doesn't. We disagreed on it. And we're watching it frame by frame on high-definition TV. I don't blame the official at all for that call. He sees the head snap back. That's an automatic thing. And, you know, for as much as I dislike Benino selling it, it is a part of hockey. Oh,
2: it's it's. I don't give a shit, man. I mean, if that guy's a Bruin, you're you're standing up for him, like.
1: Well, that, that's just it. Is that I don't have a problem with it. It's not my favorite part of the sport, but I guess the way that I'm looking at it, and I, I hate using this argument because it, it's kind of overplayed, but Oshie, if he doesn't put himself in that situation, there's not a penalty. Come on.
2: Oshie yeah. also, I think, thought he hit him too, because I mean, in real time. Oshi just skated to the bench, like uh, I mean, to the penalty box, like ah, uh, fuck me, um, like he didn't, he didn't protest, he didn't call up Anino, he just skated right there, like he knew exactly what he did. So I mean, I think even, I think even uh, Oshi fell for it.
1: Oh, he definitely fell for it, and I think I pointed this out to when we were chatting earlier today. It's poetic justice because in last year's playoffs, Oshi earned a penalty on on the exact same type of playoff. a stick up near the helmet, up near the chin, snaps the head back, goes down. Earns a power play, and I think Washington scored on that one, just like the Penguins did on this one. But
2: well, see, Burns, I don't like, even blame Benito because he didn't even go down. Like he snapped his head back. That's fine. Like he kept playing, and he just he just put the head back a little bit. You know, like when they when it's blatant, obvious, it, it's a little bit more comical. But like when when there's a stick up there and you snap your head back, like I don't know that 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 one seemed all fair in love and hockey to me.
1: No, I, I'm I'm with you there. Uh, caps are dead, right?
2: I want to say so but like this series has just been so strange and I'm a big believer that like 3-1 is obviously a death grip but especially the way the NHL schedules their series the Capitals win game 5 right back at home now now they got a little bit of momentum they they somehow carry that momentum and win game 6 in Pittsburgh which, you know they did in game three and then all of a sudden you're in a coin flip game seven with a caps team that is rolling and who knows if Crosby is back. Um, the other thing is they're one like weird shot to the side of uh, Mark Andre Fleury's mask or one pulled groin away from having like me pull on my pads and start and back up and goal for them. So in, until the buzzer sounds, I think there's kind of that outside chance that Flurry pulls a groin or goes nuclear and they, you know, that doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility to me, that Caps win game five at home in a close one, Flurry self-destructs in game six, and all of a sudden game seven, you're like, oh shit, this is, this is anybody's game.
1: But it's Washington.
2: No, listen, I think they're probably dead. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate. I think when you get into these three ones where game five is at home, game six on the road, but you have momentum, and game seven is back at home, it's very easy for a team like Pittsburgh without its best forward that who's the best player in the world, without its best defenseman, to, you know, have something go wrong. It doesn't even have to be an injury to Flurry. That's obviously some kind of freak worst case scenario. They lose somebody else to injury or even a, a penalty or a game misconduct or something, all of a sudden they're really they're really dipping and it, it just takes a couple of weird bounces to get Washington into a game seven at home and if there's still no Crosby at that point, I mean, that's that's the truest coin flip in the world.
1: I think one of the things that pisses me off the most is that the penguins have been able to develop players so well in the past handful of years that it, it, it's every
2: year uh, there's a new guy every year like here comes how do you Jake jencel last year it was sheery and like oh, it just it never ends
1: that is a player development like player development league or player development office excuse me that is just hitting home runs left and right they are late round picks undrafted free agents that are Really paying dividends for them. And the other thing, too, is that their AHL affiliate, the Hershey Bears, or I'm sorry, that's uh, I'm, Hershey Bears is Washington. They have a real good farming team. Wilkes-Barre, Scranton, their AHL affiliate, yeah. the also has a damn good team. So the Penguins, it's not like they're going away anytime soon because they have Crosby, they have Malkin, they have Latang. they'll have Murray or uh, Fleury after the expansion draft. And they still have this youth core just plying, plowing forward. And It, it sucks because they're not going to go away anytime soon.
2: You know what sucks, Tim? As we move out of this, listen. I think the Penguins are going to win too. I, I want to see the Cavs move on, and I want to see this series not end in five games. So I'm trying to juice it up. But you know what will make me more depressed than like anything in the world? As before we move on to the rest of the series, a Penguins back
1: as a free agent.
2: Oh, well, that's that's something else. That's another thing. But a Penguins Ducks Cup final, like, and if Crosby's still out, talk about something that's just going to be so blase, and like, oh, uh, I want no part of that.
1: You mean you don't want to see Ryan Kessler get a Stanley Cup?
2: Uh, like they, don't, they already have one, don't Oh no, he came over after the fact, that's right. Yeah.
1: No, the only player that has a Stanley Cup is uh, Getzloff. There's a lot of other players. Uh, I don't think even Perry, Perry may have been... No, Perry was definitely on that team. Okay, and he was very young like Getzloff was, but yeah, Kessler doesn't.
2: Uh, I, I, you know, I, I knew he got traded from Vancouver, I always forget that, but... Yeah, a ducks Penguin series just seems like – I'm sure the NHL will like it because they get their Penguins and they get a California team. But talk about something that just like nobody needs in their lives.
1: So I guess that means we have to be pulling for either Nashville or St. Louis.
2: I want Nashville in the cup final. I, I think even more than I want Edmonton. Listen, Edmonton's going to be in plenty of cup finals. I was, I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, are you ready for the next five years of Oilers-Toronto uh, becoming yeah. the Penguins-Blackhawks? because um, we are chugging towards like that being literally this, the past 10 years rep- being replicated in the next 10 years, and it just being Canadian teams instead of American teams. So give me the Predators while the West is a little open before the Oilers Right, really take that next step. I think they're going to beat the Blues. I think they've got this one. I don't feel the same way I do about the Penn's Capital series. I think this one is more in the Predators' bag. They've looked so good, um, and I, I'll watch – Literally every moment I count on P.K. Subban on the ice. So put, put the Predators in the Stanley Cup final for the love of God.
1: It was really hard for me to get jacked up for P.K. Subban when he was wearing red, white, and blue for the Canadians. So it makes me a lot happier that he's not facing the Bruins four times a year because he has been so fun to watch. And, you know, I... I have this weird thing with expansion franchises and new teams. I've had it since I was a kid, and I get behind the new team. So I'll end up getting some Vegas Golden Knights apparel, of course. I was going to say, we'll have to
2: get our boy Ken to hook you up.
1: Yes, I, I will certainly <laughs> be uh, barking up that tree. But the Predators and what they've done in Nashville in the last 18 years and how that city, their, their market shares for their games are going through the roof. It's standing room only crowds. Everybody's in that awesome yellow I, I want to see that team keep going. Just the entertainment fact, I mean, fuck James Neal. So that that kind of sucks. But the the rest of that team, there really isn't somebody besides Neal that I can hate a lot. And the way that they play, the run they've been on. If they can knock out St. Louis, who got the Western Final last year, Chicago, a, a typical powerhouse, and then maybe they have to knock out a you know a, an Anaheim team that's rolling through the Pacific Division. That's a scary team and they have a lot of top end talent and Pecorino has been playing out of his fucking mind. So that that's a good team. That that's definitely who I'm pulling for in the playoffs now. So I, I'm I'm all in on the Predators train.
2: I would I would really just love to see that Predators team get get a moment or two in the sun before we you know we, we get into this new era. Not that they're gonna be terrible by any stretch, but it would be so nice to see a guy like Suban really take that next step into be, being considered among the upper echelon of the NHL, which I think some of the bullshit that surrounds him kind of keeps him from making that next step. Shout out to my boy Mike mulberry We'll get to him in a moment. Who boy would I have to pick with that guy? Um, but but him, Victor Arvidsson, Roman Yossi. I mean, there's so many guys that would be like really fun to see kind of win and Peckarina. Obviously, they have a good goaltender, so it would, be, it would be a nice team to kind of get into that upper echelon to see more because they're a fun team.
1: No, oh, they are. That's. That's why I can get behind him a little bit. Um, Peter Laviolette always has rubbed me the wrong way. Oh, I,
2: I'm, I'm a fan of his.
1: He's a Massachusetts native, so shout out to uh, Franklin Mass and Westfield State University. For- I would
2: agree, too. He's, he hits all the boxes for me.
1: Yes. Um, so I, I, I can get behind that, but I, I don't know. James Neal always kind of gives me this. <laughs> bad vibe of I don't want to see him succeed um
2: Tim James Neal or Corey Perry and Getzloff and Kessler
1: Getzloff I'm all for Kessler no Uh, um so I guess two to one so I guess I'm voting for Nashville there uh St. Louis Arisenko I mean that just quickly on that side of the coin the fact that they were able to trade away Shattenkirk and they're you know in a good battle in the Western Conference semifinals, finals that's a pretty um Pretty resounding way that that franchise has rebounded after a lot of turmoil. They fired Ken Hitchcock. They went with Mike Eto. All that stuff. So kudos to them.
2: And eh, kudos to Jake Allen,
1: mostly. Well,
2: yeah. That, that, I that, mean, that. it's one of those uh, things. I'd love, to, I'd love for narrative's sake for that to be like a great team coming together moment after the trade. But that's just hot goalie disease in the playoffs. Which I mean, good for them for catching it. But I'm not putting that much stock in that one.
1: So now to the, I guess. Most tumultuous in your eyes and most boring series in my eyes.
2: I, I I wouldn't say it's that tumultuous. I just really don't want to see the Rangers win as well.
1: So the fact that they put their nuts on the forehead of the Ottawa Senators tonight, I'm sure, is rubbing you uh, pretty pretty well.
2: Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll let uh we'll we will not spend too much time talking about the top. We'll get into our interview with Arthur Staple in a moment, but you know you'll you'll see why in a moment. But uh, Arthur gave me plenty of reason to think this was an important game and the rangers won it i i didn't see much of it i don't think you did either tim so i can't offer a font of knowledge on it but 2-2 i think uh i think that series goes to the rangers but uh before before we waste too much time on it let's get into our interview with arthur all right now for our next part of the program we are going to welcome on arthur staple of newsday friend of the program how you doing arthur I'm good, Brendan. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for coming on tonight. Wanted to have Arthur on and not only kind of wrap up the Islander season and talk about what's definitely going to be an eventful offseason, which we'll do in a little bit. But first, he's also been covering the uh, the Rangers for Newsday and wanted to get his thoughts. One of the things I wanted to ask you, obviously the Rangers picking up their first win in Game 3, what do you think they did right that they didn't do as well in Game 2 and Game 1? Um, well, I certainly played with... Uh an extra level
0: of intensity and, and, and kind of sharpness I guess and, and to me the bigger difference was their opponent just didn't play they didn't really come to play mm-hmm. I was just recounting I was just recounting to my wife who didn't see the game a few of the goals and, uh it was you know between uh, Craig Anderson you know going out to play the puck and kind of leaving it for Ben Harper and neither of them playing it on the second goal that night and and uh, Eric Carlson and Mark Stone colliding to give the Rangers pretty much a full ice two on one on Rick Nash. goal to make it three nothing. It was it was uh, it was an embarrassing performance from Ottawa. And you know you've seen it around the league in, in different forms. Uh, this round, uh, Edmonton didn't really come up with a big effort. Up two nothing against Anaheim. Pittsburgh obviously had some extenuating circumstances of Game Three to lose that one. But uh, but being up two nothing and getting to that three nothing level, especially these days, just so difficult uh, when you're down to the final eight. The, the teams are so even. The intensity levels can, can be ratcheted up and down. And I think you see it more this year In the last couple of years in the playoffs. Teams giving up two and three goal leads within games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just think I just think momentum is such a such a hollow word these days that the, the teams just can. are you know, so evenly matched that if there's even a little bit of a, a letdown, whether it's the start of a game or in a game when you have a lead, you're going to get caught out. I think that's what happened to Ottawa last night, and if they can get it back tomorrow, uh, that would be obviously beneficial to them. But really, this is, uh, other than their incredible comeback to win Game they've two, but, but two really bad games back-to-back for a team that prides itself on structure and, and defensive style, uh, giving up nine goals in those two games, and a lot of them on wide-open plays to so a Ranger team that can really victimize you if they get some space. So uh, I'm curious to see how game four go. I think if the Rangers win it, uh, the series is going to be tough for Ottawa to get back into. Uh, even though I just said momentum isn't really uh, much of a thing, I feel like uh, the Rangers have really had much better to play at the series so far. And if they continue that, it looks like they, they could go on and win.
2: Kind of going off the intensity, because I noticed the same thing when I watched the game the other night. Do you, What do you think it is that separated, you know, obviously they had that poor spell at home in the regular season that was talked about, and they've been playing pretty well at home during the playoffs so far. They went 2-1 and one in the Montreal series and won their first one against ottawa I'm, i know you didn't watch them as closely obviously during the regular season but what do you think is the difference or is it just kind of you know one of those one of those things where they were they were cold earlier and now they've heated up you know i, I just find teams like that you know it,
0: it, it's a little different with teams that have have a higher skill level i think teams like the hawks or even the minnesota regular season for a team like the rangers that has been deep into the playoffs a lot of years in the last five or six uh, springs um you know, I think they, they know how to pace themselves. You get you got that core group of guys that obviously doesn't have the same impact that they used to guys like Derek Stepan and Mark Stahl and Dan Girardi, uh, McDonough. You know, they, I think they know the, the ebbs and flows of the season and they know when well, you can ratchet it up and, and Lundquist especially. I, I was talking to him uh, before this series began and it's just the experience factor is is, is well, you know, it's not always such a difference maker, but I think when the group of guys that has been together, you know, six or seven guys have been together as long as they've been together in as many playoff games as they've played. When you know that there's another level that you need to get to to, to win the deeper rounds, you can get to it. And I think it's just uh, it's just a learning experience. It's very natural to not, to not have that if you haven't been through it before. And I think a game like the Senators had last night, you know, they've got some experienced guys in their room, but not really to this level and, and this deep in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I think if you haven't been there before, Even if it's, you know, you've won a Memorial Cup or you won an NCAA championship or even a a Calder Cup in the NHL, the NHL is just a different animal. And and unless you've been through it a couple of times, I think it's hard to be able to find that level night, you know, night after night, game after game. In the playoffs, things are so intense and so physical every night.
2: Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, how important, obviously, Game 4 is. I always feel like it's one of the more important games in a series, just kind of in general when you look at the ebbs and flows of a typical series and obviously game five another big one back in ottawa and the the senators are a little banged up i know it seems like bobby Ryan's going to play but there also have also been a few other injuries so how do you think that's going to affect them moving forward are those guys going to play or, or how effective with it will they be
0: you know i think a guy probably that seems like zach smith's probably not going to play but i think uh you know as far mm-hmm. as he has a couple healthy guys tom pyatt who uh you know banged up and missed a couple games, so they like a lot. Uh, he'll probably get back in. Uh, Chris Weidman has been a healthy scratch on D, he'll probably go back in for Ben Harper, who didn't have a great night, but I think uh, Boucher made the point today. You know, this is not a team where they're concerned about individual performances. Obviously they have a guy in Eric Carlson who's one of the best in the league and a joy to watch every time he's out there, but uh, if the rest of their guys are not in sync and, and playing structured, it doesn't really matter who's, who's in and who's out. They, you know, they can't afford even have another first 10 minutes forget 20 or 25 like that they start off as poorly they did game three it's um it's going to be in their heads that uh that the rangers just are you know wanted it more as the, as the players like to say and it's it's a bit pretty big indictment of uh, a team that's uh, overcome an awful lot this year in ottawa with Craig Anderson's situation with his wife battling breast cancer, the mm-hmm. Parker part making such a dramatic comeback from uh, missing almost the entire season with like concussion, Carlson's various injuries—you um, know—it's—it's it's been a very strange season for them, considering where they were a year ago, missing the playoffs. New coach coming in—it's uh, been an impressive run, and they've done it with that structure and that uh, that kind of commitment to block your shots, doing all these things that uh, analytics folks don't like, but uh, <laughs> seem to still be able to bring you some success in the NHL, especially this time of year. So uh, if they can't get back to that, I don't really think it matters who's in and who's out. They're not going to have much of a chance.
2: Now uh, moving over to the Islanders now I guess before we get into the into the offseason what you thought you know as a whole of the season we talked a few times during the course of the season when both when they were playing kind of as poorly as they had been and as well as they had been over the course of the season so it, it was definitely an up and down year and I think one that left a lot of fans frustrated but frustrated excuse me but you know kind of two or three weeks removed now how do you think you know how do you grade or how do you sum up this Islanders season Yeah
0: up and down I, I guess you could call it down and up yeah, the way that they that's true. And up and down, up and down is usually uh, enough to get you in the playoffs. at the start, you know, they, if you perhaps had flipped the, the halves of the season that they had, if they started off twenty four four, I think, I think they would have uh, been playing into into the playoffs and maybe uh, you know done some damage. But um, yeah, it was a very strange year, you know, to see them and really go back, uh, you know, on breakup day. All the players certainly. Uh, put in mind, and, and it was—you uh, could sense it happening. Those five or six games uh, in the first twenty, where they were tied late in the third period and came over with no points. Um, you know, those are killers, and, and it's hard to feel like uh, your season's over uh, when the calendar's just in November. But, uh, but I feel like that California trip around Thanksgiving, where they did it, uh, they did it mm-hmm. twice, I believe. You know. Uh, in L.A., they gave up uh, the winning goal late, uh, and San Jose came back to tie with the, with the net empty, and then gave up the winner after that to Patrick Marlar, I believe about 20 seconds left in regulation. I think those were – you could sense it. I think uh, at the time there were some guys that was creeping in that, that, that felt like this this just wasn't working. And, and it's, you know, those, those games tied when you get late. Uh, those are coin flip games. You're certainly – going to get a point at least and possibly two maybe even if you don't deserve it uh, in most nights and the fact that they came out with zero every single time is just mystifying really not a product of putting the wrong guys on the ice uh, the wrong goaltender it just you know stuff happens I guess it's it's a terrible explanation for a lot of people <laughs> who certainly want want to pin the, the blame on somebody and obviously Jack Capuano was the one that ultimately Yeah that's also what I was going to say for, the, for those losses but uh but really, it was just—it was a lot of little things. Uh, you know, you give up a goal here and there during the course of a 60-minute game, and you can overcome it. But those late ones were were killers, and to get no points out of those—even just—you know—they if they lost all of them in overtime or in a shootout. Think of where they'd be; they wouldn't have even gotten the last wild card. They might have been competing for the Rangers for that first wild card sure. Yeah, um, it's pretty crazy to go back to, to to be able to say these are the games that did it to them. But mm-hmm. uh, you can certainly look at those and really wonder where they would have been if they had been able to get some points out of
2: those. Yeah, I think if you look at, you know, almost any one-goal game over the course of the season, and obviously something that stings, especially with the propensity they had this year to, to or at least what it felt like, the propensity to, to blow a lot of late leads. Um, and it was a mixed bag of a season. And I think for a lot of fans, at least, it's kind of a, been a mixed bag of the first few weeks of the offseason in that they they brought back Doug Waite. And I think that was positive news for at least the majority of the fan base. Um but I guess on the, on the flip side, for a lot of people, they brought back Garth Snow. I certainly wasn't surprised by it, but I know a lot of people were, or a lot of people were at least angered by it if they weren't surprised by it. So, you know, what did you think of kind of both those front office moves, so to speak, to start the off season?
0: You know, I, I, I think uh, the owners uh, Scott Malkin and John Ledecky certainly did a lot of homework throughout the year, and you know, I reported, and some other people up in Canada reported that you know the many. Uh, folks in hockey that they spoke to uh, whether it was player agents, uh, you know, big name former players uh, some executives who uh, were with other teams some were not with other teams and it certainly seemed to be pointing towards them uh, finding a, a new team president uh, you know, someone to oversee hockey operations, perhaps take the reins from Garth Snow and maybe decide Garth Snow's fate mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, they in talking to all these people, I think they heard that People respect Garth Snow and the job that he does. And I think uh, with some of the constraints that he's dealt with over the, the decade or so that he's been in charge, uh, that a lot of other teams don't have, uh, whether that's genuine for to hear, you know, when your competitors say you're doing a good job, that might not be the biggest compliment. But uh, these owners decided that was good enough for them. And I think also the contract situation, uh, you know, as I reported, he's got at least five years left on a deal that uh, he signed with Charles long before. Wong turned over the team to, to the new owners, so mm-hmm. that's uh, pretty prohibitive of that kind of money. Um, and I think just uh, you know the, the job that Doug Waite did coaching the team and, and his relationships with the important players, John Tavares most of all, you know, I think it was kind of, you call it almost a trickle-up effect. Tavares obviously liked playing for Doug Waite. I don't think he'd ever go to the owners and advocate uh, for a coach or a general manager, but uh, it was quite clear their, their closeness and how well that voted for the team when uh, when Doug was in charge. So Doug gets the head coaching job, and I think when he's negotiating with the owners for the head coaching job to get it full time right after the season ended, I think he wants some assurances that his role as an assistant general manager, and working well with Carl Snow as they've done for the past six years, is going to continue. And uh, so I think a lot of things came out of that that second half of the year that maybe uh, would upset a lot of fans to think that you know you, you see the random person on Twitter sometimes say I wish they would lose every game so that everybody could inspire. Uh, <laughs> that mystifies me a bit as a someone who covers the team or you know, as a sports fan in general, but um, this is the result of the team pulling themselves together and nearly uh, pulling off a, a pretty miraculous rally to get in the playoffs, especially that last week without Tavares. So, uh, you know, I think... Uh, Doug staying was a product of what they did and, and also the you know, trying to appeal to Tavares to get him to sign an extension. Uh, and I think Doug staying also meant, meant Garth was staying at least for the you know, this next year to come. I think there's a lot of pressure on on Garth Snow this off season to to make some changes and uh, and try to, you know, reconfigure this roster to, to be better, especially right off the bat. But, uh, if that doesn't happen, I'm sure there'll be changes uh, after next season or in the middle of next season, but uh, but for now, um, you know, the status quo, I guess you could call it from the middle of the season on, is, is what the owners were looking for, and uh, people can be upset about it and fight about it all they want, but this is the deal, and uh, you know, now we have to look a little bit more forward to the summer and see what, uh, what Garth and Doug can come up with.
2: They also brought back uh, Dennis Seidenberg already with another one-year deal, and that kind of seemed to me like a move you make because you think... You might lose a defenseman to the expansion draft or, or some other kind of transaction, and, and that kind of brings us to the next you know hurdle, so to speak, in the offseason, which is the expansion draft. Obviously, there's a lot of D on the roster. Um, is there anyone you think is at risk, so to speak, of being taken, or, or will they make any type of trade to massage the roster? Obviously, there's been a lot of trade talk for, you know, with the owners in general between Colorado and a little bit with Tampa and all that, but um, in general, how do you think the expansion draft's going to go over the course of the next month or two?
0: I could see, you know, I, I get the impression that there's a, a lot of meetings going on with uh, everyone in the front office right now, and uh, you know, starting the plans, those sorts of things. I think the Steinberg sign signing, you know, really, he was the only unrestricted free agent that they were mm-hmm. on this roster. I, th- I think it was, like you said, you know, protecting against the possibility of losing a defenseman. Whether that's Thomas Hickey, who's got uh, a year left on the deal, or uh, Calvin Hahn who's a restricted free agent in line for a pretty big bump up from uh, his last contract, um, you know, I think they're just guarding against not only losing a defenseman or two, maybe you know, including somebody in the trade, but also, you know, it's, it's certainly been their pattern, and it's not they're not alone in it uh, in the NHL of having veteran guys. Just in case, the, you know, one of their younger guys that pan out, we certainly saw quite a bit of Adam Pellick and, and Scott Mayfield this year. And sure. you know, honestly, not just looking back at the numbers, but you know, looking back at some of the, the video, I think Scott Mayfield really distinguished himself quite a bit as a guy who'd be a very reliable six, seven, eight defenseman. Um, you know, I thought he was better than Pellick uh, a lot of the games that he played. Uh, and then there's of course Ryan Pulock, who's uh, always a topic of conversation, and, and somehow didn't managed to get into that mix after he broke his foot a, on a second shift up with the team in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seemed to kind of miss an opportunity there to, to you know, establish himself. And again, had another productive AHL season. So, uh, And then there's Devin Taves, who, uh, you know, everybody in the organization has raved about his, his progress in the AHL uh, in his first pro year. I don't know if he'll be ready to make that big jump, but, uh, you know, all the young guys are always uh, a bit of a question mark. And, has to have good camps. And when you have a guy like Seidenberg who really, um, you know, for all of his uh, underlying numbers that have been going south uh, his previous few years in Boston, was, was pretty steady for a, a sixth defenseman. And, you know, really, you look at that space of time when he was out with a broken jaw, that was a, that was a bad stretch for the Islanders. And I'm certainly not saying it's because of Dennis Seidberg not being in the lineup, but he, he certainly uh, was a solid pair with Calvin DeHaan pretty much the entire season. and and just a steady guy who, who managed to, you know, <clears throat> improve his uh, his uh, his core this year from, from the last couple of years and produce a lot way uh, more offense than I think anybody thought. To him. So um, it's uh, it's a it's a pretty low risk signing and, and maybe allows them to think a little bit more clearly about letting one or two defensemen go, whether it's in the expansion draft or uh, making a trade.
2: You mentioned that they don't, you know, at this point they really have no UFAs on their roster. So do you see any big changes coming? Do you think there are any free agents they have their eyes on? I've seen people talk about Oshi or Kovalchuk, obviously. There were the rumors with the Avalanche about Matt Duchesne, and I believe I saw you or somebody else talking about maybe even something with Tampa back around the trade deadline. So obviously a team that, unlike last year, has a lot of guys locked in and isn't going to be losing Really, any of the the faces of the team, or really anybody? What do you think that it looks like next year? Is it basically the same guys? You know, I, I think there's going to be some changes. I I think
0: uh, you know the expansion draft. Even even if there's no major trades before that expansion draft, if we go to the you know the draft floor, the proper draft, the amateur draft, uh, when you uh, leave guys unprotected, you know, I think it maybe sends obviously, you know, uh, financial and, and other considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, you know, if you're leaving Orion Ryan Strum unprotected, which certainly seems like it, or Josh Bailey unprotected, I think that also sends a message to other teams that those guys might be available. Sure. Uh, and, and perhaps that changes some of the uh, trade talks after the expansion draft passes, whoever you've got left. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i always a little skeptical when, when you hear you know, whether the national reporters out of Canada talking to GMs or whoever saying like it's going to be some crazy summer with lots of names thrown around. You know, I understand that the expansion draft kind of throws things uh, into a bit of flux. But uh, but I think the you know I think Garth Snow is, is looking to upgrade the, you know the top end of their forward group. Uh, you know, we we talked about this we talked about this a lot of years I think that John Ferris has, uh, has been on the island that not really necessarily looking for someone to, to play alongside him, but just someone to score consistently behind him, whether it's the second and line or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it always seems like the guy that ends up having a great year or guys that end up having great years are the ones that end up playing with, <laughs> with the Barrett. probably it was Anders Lee and Josh Bailey this year. But and Brock Nelson got to 20 goals again, and, I you know, I think uh, he's a guy that was probably thrown into trade talks uh, that Dark now had with Joe Sackett before the deadline about Matthew Shane, but uh, you know, but Brock Nelson can still be a useful guy. Ryan Strome, you know, obviously had the injury to kill at the end of his season, and we'll have to see about him. He certainly played uh, a bit better uh, when Doug Wade came in, and I think his confidence went up a little bit. But, but can you risk uh, using a top six, top nine spot on him for another year and uh, not know what you're going to get? guys like Josh Hosang, who certainly distinguished himself with his, uh, the games that he played and Anthony Beauvillier, who, who showed a little bit more offensive creativity playing with Hosang down the stretch. Uh, and you've got Matthew Barzal, who, uh, by all rights probably should have been on this team for the whole year, and, uh, is going to be hungry to get in there next year and, and to be the, the guy, if they get, you know, if they aren't able to pull off a big trade for number two center, Barzal could end up being that guy. So, um, You know, I think there's a there's a few considerations, and I and I think the the group is going to look a bit different, and uh, you know whether it's drastically different remains to be seen. But given the way that they played the second half of the season, and I think watching some of the 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 good teams, the teams that finished high in the standings, especially in the Eastern Conference in that first round, there's not a lot of teams that really could say, well, that team is way better than the Islanders. Obviously, the Caps struggled a little bit as team. Good teams do in the first round. Um, you know, Pittsburgh looks looks as strong as ever. Columbus really didn't look very good. Montreal didn't look very good. The Rangers, did, you know, struggled to score but managed to get through. Mm-hmm. The others can play. The others can play with these teams, and I and I know it. Uh, there's always going to be that chunk of the fan base that feels like this team is going nowhere, but uh, but I don't really see it that way. I think there's there's some youth coming and. Some interesting guys that are that are going to be coming through, and uh, you know, obviously, in addition to the trade talk, you've got the, the, the Tavares situation, which is going to decide an awful lot uh, going forward with this franchise. But uh, but if he decides to re-up, you know, I think uh, I think it's uh, it's a team that is a few tweaks away from really being what everyone thought they were going to be after fourteen, fifteen, which is a a, a team that's supposedly on the rise and, and can really hang in with some of the big boys in the.
2: Yeah, and, and you mentioned the elephant in the room, and it's really the last thing I wanted to ask you about before I let you go is, you know, obviously at this point, I think the cards are kind of on the table and the Islanders are probably in a holding pattern when it comes to Tavares. Um, it seems like by all public indications, he hopefully wants to stay. The Islanders are obviously going to throw, throw the checkbook at him. Um, in terms of timeline and obviously, you know, the, the negotiation window officially opens on July 1st, so nothing will officially happen to them. Do you think there's anything kind of, unofficially happening in the background right now and and god forbid does something go something does go wrong for islander fans what's what's the timeline of you know when it's time to start getting reasonably concerned <laughs>
0: um <clears throat> you know i think reasonably concerned uh, passed a long time ago for most islander fans <laughs> That's fair. um you know i from what i understand and certainly from what i've heard from west camp and from the islanders and, What's been reported by guys like Elliot Freeman that, you know, he's uh, in Toronto or, uh, you know, kind of laying low, I believe, for now, and um, probably have his uh, meetings with Pat Gerson and his group at, uh, at CAA to talk about where he wants to go with this and how things stand for him. Uh, and I think there's going to be, you know, it's going to be sooner rather than later that they'll have some indication about whether he wants to sign or whether he's determined to go to the end of his contract and see about free agency, and that certainly is the worst-case scenario for Islander fans because that probably triggers uh, a lot of trade talk and uh, the Islanders having to see what they can get for John Tavares before this uh, this contract is up and, and, and you know, throwing him open to the highest bidder for next season and basically starting from scratch. So... Um, you know, I, think it, I think Tavares is not the sort of guy who's going to drag this out and, and want to you know, play any, any sort of games uh, you know, with his future or with the Islanders' future. I think he, he has a lot of respect for the Islanders as an organization, and I just think the way that he handles himself in all these situations is, is the kind of guy who, uh, if he does decide he wants to leave or wants to see about free agency after next season, he's going to let them know. Soon enough, that they can decide what they want to do, whether they want to keep him for that last year and make a last ditch effort to keep you know to keep him beyond that, or start thinking about a trade and start putting his name out there to other general managers. So I don't think he's going to let it dangle for too long. And uh, and also on the you know the other side, it's not all negative. If he decides he wants to stay, um, I imagine he'll tell them pretty quickly because they have a lot of plans that they want to make. And I think it, it maybe changes their approach to the expansion draft. It changes their approach to the amateur draft with that 15th pick. Maybe, uh, you know, if they know they have a commitment from him and they know what kind of contract they're going to give him, they can start to talk to teams about whether it's, again, you know, revisiting the Matthew Shane situation. And, you know, I, I think they're going to know uh, before the end of this month uh, where he stands on an extension and, and what the parameters are being but you can't officially say. You know, I, to me everything I've been hearing all along this year is, is it's the full eight years and it's gonna be at least ten million. There's gonna be no discounts in that kind of kind. And really why should you give it any you know, give the Islanders or any team a discount at this sure. point? He certainly took an undermarket deal last time around and, and that to me says he gets paid this time around because this is gonna be the, the major deal of his career. So um, You know, knowing that it's whether it's ten or ten and a half per year, that sets uh, some boundaries for the salary cap and what the Islanders can afford to do and and how they can shuffle things around. So I think uh, I think we're going to know within within a couple of weeks uh, what his plans are. And and frankly, if it's if he decides he doesn't want to sign right now, and the Islanders are going to explore trading him. Uh, I think I may stay off Twitter for quite a while if that goes
2: down. Yeah, I don't blame you. I, I think I might go into hiding too. Just, just better to avoid <laughs> it and let the chips fall where they may. Well, Arthur, I appreciate you taking the time in between games. Thanks for uh, coming on the chat with us and enjoy the rest of the Ranger series.
1: You got it, Brendan. Have, Have time, a good one, my friend. Bye bye. So that was Arthur Staple from Newsday. Follow him on Twitter at Stape Newsday. Give a good breakdown of the Rangers-Senators series that is tied at two games apiece uh, as we tape this podcast. So we've gone through our starting five. We've had our interview with a member of the media. So let's wrap uh, this first episode of the third season of the Chief Music Podcast with our three stars of the week. Uh, I will go first, and I'm going to go with Chris Sale. Um, That dude for the Red Sox, and I'm sorry I'm going the Homer route to open this one, but that dude has been a badass for the Red Sox. And I love what he did with Machado the other night. Didn't hit him, but he buzzed him right behind the knee at 98. After he let Adam Jones get the standing ovation for all the bullshit that was happening at Fenway Park. So that dude is a lunatic. But boy, am I happy he's wearing my team's uniform.
2: We'll wait till July. I mean, that guy's. Are you happy he's going to end up suspended? Apparently.
1: Well, uh, no. It's possibly maybe suspended. He may also be fined. And as long as the team doesn't go any crazy retro uniforms, I think it will be okay. Mm-hmm.
2: We'll, we'll see if they lose 10 games in July or something. It gets all hot in the city. Chris Seltz sure. tends to get a little bothered by stuff.
1: Well, if he keeps pitching the way he does, if that team loses 10 in a row, it's not going to be his fault.
2: It's, I mean, <laughs> it not stopped him from losing other games he's pitched. Um, well, but, I mean, no, he's been he's been unreal. What is it, 10 strikeouts in his first four starts, which is, like, frightening. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: he's putting up Pedro numbers.
2: He's, he's, he's ready to go to start the season, which is obviously nice. Obviously he's a super competitive guy. So nice to see him get to a situation where he can compete. Even if it is for a team I despise, but I I hope something not great happens to that team.
1: Well, every time he pitches, that looks like a UCL injury waiting to happen. So, uh, hold on, hold on for dear life. Hold on your butts here. Fans, uh, your number three guy, uh, made an appearance in my blog this week, and a uh, friend of the program uh, that you had a chance to interact with, uh, so you told me. Uh, who's bet, your number three
2: star? I met him on an Amtrak like two weeks ago, and I, did, I didn't say anything. It was a real, uh, a real long moment for me. But my number three star this week is good old Mike Milbury of uh, NBC Sports, the, uh, premier hot takest in the NHL these days. And he, he has, he's had a couple of doozies lately. I feel like obviously the one about Subban being a clown is particularly sweet because they, i like, you kind of mentioned Tim, they like broke the record for their own, I guess their own record for uh, local market share, like the same game that he danced. So yeah, it really seems to be having a negative effect. Um, just can we, like, I don't even mind the hot take people. Do we have to hear the same thing from Milbury all the time? Like, I know what he's going to say already. That's my biggest problem with it. Don't be flashy. If they're beating you, you how do you stop Carlson? We'll punch him in his foot. You already know it's broken. Like, I get it. He he does what he does. I don't even want to, like, hate on him that much. But can we get, like, a different kind of hot take us in there can we get some type of change of pace because if I have to hear him talk about like the importance of the fourth line and the grit and the physicality one more time I'm going to put a bullet in the side of my head
1: what's American Don Cherry
2: I don't even watch like the post games on NBC anymore I flip it over to NHL Network it's like I have no it's not the American Don Cherry though because Don Cherry's at least like interesting no well, he's not he- he's so boring and predictable and his takes are still shitty
1: I disagree. I, I think Cherry's too far off his rocker. But at least Mil-
2: he's entertaining to him. Like, Milbury just like, rah, grumble, 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 mutter, 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 don't be entertaining. At least Cherry, like, give me, gives me the suits and the flair. At least he gives me something that, to tune in for. God is Milbury's news.
1: I think you're just very jaded over the, uh, the wonders that he ran for the New York Islanders. Would- I don't think he's that bad. And a part of me agrees with a lot of what he says. The Subban one, not so much, but the other stuff, I'm not that far off.
2: I don't even um, care that I disagree with him. That's fine. I like, kind of like when I have people I disagree with on my TV show sometimes. But like, so goddamn boring and predictable. We get it, Mike. You don't like fun.
1: <laughs> Want to go to a guy that likes fun?
2: Oh, don't. <laughs> yeah. See, this is the the yin and the yang of my of my three stars of the week. I, I'll get my chagrin out of the way first. Dante Jones. What a lunatic. What a what a great guy. Tim, he got I'm sure you didn't see this. The dunk he, he put down ended up costing him six thousand dollars. You know how much money he was paid this year?
1: How much, Brendan? Nine
2: thousand dollars. <laughs> you ever been fined two thirds of your salary before? That's just absolutely incredible. LeBron paid it because of course he did, because LeBron's got like money falling out of his Jordan, so you'd hope that LeBron would cover for his four digit paycheck friend. But good God, getting fined two thirds of your salary for effectively just dunking is a way to go, man.
1: That's a uh, that that's got to be a record in terms of the percentage of somebody's salary being forfeited.
2: And he, well, he got fined last playoffs too. He just like shows up in the playoffs and gets fined.
1: If you smoke him, if you got him, be consistent. And uh, seems like he's doing that so far.
2: You do you, Dante. Uh, listen, we needed some more fun after the mic thing, so. Tante jones
1: you want fun i
0: have fun mitchell the bitchell mitchell the bitchell big fan wrote about this in the blog big fan of the
1: titties
2: um, <laughs> we've been talking about this for a week and a half so the fact that you're still on it like is is impressive really
1: well it's the first time we've had an opportunity to chat as compared to write, but big fan of what was it which verb did he use i
2: love kissing on some titties
1: Love kissing on some titties. So oh. a couple of things. We had the, the Bears' whole clusterfuck with this, so that's its own thing. But I, if, if this isn't a perfect example of why kids should be aware of their social media accounts, then I don't know what is. But when you tweet out – I think he was in high school at the time. A big fan of licking some titties. No,
2: kissing, Tim. Kissing makes it so much better.
1: I know. Kissing some titties and it comes back to bite him the day he gets drafted – and he's now the new quarterback in the third largest media market in the country. It, it's fantastic, and I'm sure all of the drunk Bears fans that are going to struggle through another two and fourteen season are going to be big fans of the fact that he's a a titty man. But even still, just not no bueno there. Just so one of those like number two star because it's fantastic.
2: The only problem I have with these things, and I'm going to throw some water on one, is a very fun fire and listen. I've enjoyed it, but. Who is the fucking loser who's had this tweet just saved in his drafts, like, waiting for draft night to bring it back? Like, ah, oh, the people that go through athletes' tweets when they were, like, 14 years old to dig up something on them, like, ah, oh, just the worst kind of people.
1: Oh, I, I yeah, I'm with you there. Um, but I guess similar to the TJ Oshie thing, you know how you avoid that situation? You don't post on social media that you're a fan of titties.
2: Yeah, but 14-year-old are dumb, Tim. They're so dumb. 14?
1: I thought he was like sixteen or eighteen.
2: How Tim? How dumb were you when you were sixteen?
1: I Twitter wasn't around yet. That's showing yeah.
2: right. How like that's that's what my my only thought. I was like, I was such a dumb person. If
1: uh. would you have posted on a social media account that you love kissing titties?
2: No, I wouldn't have said that, but I would have done something else stupid. Like I don't know if you use time hop. Time hop's just a cringe factory, and I feel for guys like Mitchell Trubisky because they have to have their cringe factory broadcast. Like, I just see an awful tweet or Facebook post that I made and, like, cringe super hard on the subway on my way to work and move along with my day. He's got to see his, like, lead PTI the next day. That's – listen, I, I'm not crying any tears for a guy that's getting paid millions, but that, that's a rough rough trade.
1: If there isn't some creative sign or costume that appears at his first road start, that fan base is, has let me down already. Talk about
2: someone that's letting a fan base down, Tim, for your number one.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, that great that right segue there. Uh, All-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-hearing, Terry Pagula, the owner of the two sad Buffalo sports franchises, had himself a fucking week to remember. <laughs> fires, the, fires the GM and the head coach of the hockey franchise, I don't kind of hate because Jack Eichel is the future of that and not Dan Bilesma. And then follows up by firing the general manager and complete scouting department of the Buffalo Bills the day after the draft.
2: Swag.
1: If you live in Buffalo and you haven't killed yourself for living in Buffalo yet, how do you get excited by these, this moron who's got money coming out the ass trying to run these teams as if he's Jerry Jones. Like, what are we doing here, guys?
2: Well, we talked to our resident Buffalo correspondent, Rob Dowd, and we should have really had him on to discuss this. But he said it great to me on Sunday morning when we were talking about this, when we saw him, is that, listen, the people of Buffalo will go along with this once. They will let him clean house and, like, wave the dick around once.
1: That dick is out, man. Yeah,
2: and he has burned that one chance. So if, if this, you know, if this goes belly up, I guess he if he hits on one, you know, considering it's the same fan base, he'll you know if either the Sabers or the Bills take an upturn, he'll probably get another chance. But if he goes over two on the house cleaning, say goodnight, Babs. Buffalo will eat him alive and spit him back out.
1: I don't think the... the they have Ralph Wilson Stadium, or New Era Field at Ralph Wilson Stadium. I don't think the new. Eventually, new Buffalo stadium will be named after Terry. Buk-
2: Listen, if it works, then he'll be Steinbrenner. Like, it, there's, it's not a you know an, an unreasonable proposition, but like, like I said, he gets everybody gets one, and he just used his this weekend.
1: And I guess to wrap this one up, in the segue of all segues, talking about guys taking their dick out. Oh my
2: god! you like Tim. I know you're a Red Sox fan, but you can't even like talk shit at this point,
1: right? No, that's why I said it the way that oh, I did it. This like, guy is one of the most fun players to watch in Major League Baseball right now.
2: We're talking about Aaron Judge. He's my number one star of the week because, fuck, I mean, like, who else was I going to name it? He was the rookie of the month. I don't know how he wasn't the player of the month, but the the thing that's impressed me, and obviously the Yankees had a taste of this with Sanchez, which, by the way, that dude's due to play like tomorrow or Saturday. Um, so, let, let's go on that front, but... The ferocity with which he's hitting the balls, the pure strength. Like, Sanchez hit a lot of home runs. He had a great year. But, like, the feats of otherworldly strength this guy puts on when he sings a base, swings a baseball bat, even if he – and I'm sure the, the other shoe is going to drop. I'm sure he's due for a slump. He's due for a regression to the mean. There's going to get a book out on him. All of that, listen, it's, it's a very long baseball season and a very long baseball career ahead of Aaron Judge. But if you don't think I'm going to be excited whenever I watch that guy swim a bat, because I know that in theory, if he connects, we could see another one. Oh, forget about it. The guy's a legend already.
1: I need to see him in the home run derby, which has to be the scariest thing as a Yankee fan because that'll really fuck
2: up the swing. Yeah, if his swing isn't fucked up enough already.
1: Yeah, that's just it. Is that it happens all the time at home run derbies, but... He is the perfect type of player to see in that home run derby. And I think this year it's in Miami, if I remember correctly. I would love to see him hit balls over that weird thing in yeah, center the, field. Like
2: Fiesta thing? Hit,
1: hit them into the pool and the bar in the outfield. Oh. I want to see him hit balls where only Giancarlo Stanton has hit them. And right. if that yeah. isn't the final matchup, then I'm going to be so goddamn depressed. Just because – and, and I, the way that he swings – and he's not even the classic all-or-nothing power hitter because he does drive the ball over all of the field, and he's a good gap hitter. So I like that, but the way when he connects on it...
2: You know so quickly.
1: Oh, God. It's, I usually get all poetic about left-handed baseball players' swing just because of the way that they come off. And, like, Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing to me is the perfect swing that I've ever seen. Aaron Judge as a righty... The way that he uncoils at somebody oh his my size, Oh, my God. that That's as close to a perfect power swing that I've seen. And I want to see him hit the ball 700 feet or kill somebody in the bleachers.
2: We're pushing an hour, so I won't, I won't like, make this an hour and a half with my Aaron Judge Love Affair, although God knows I could. There's two things I want to say on this guy. The two things that have impressed me the most is, A, that – You kind of mentioned this with how he's hitting the ball over the field. Like, he hits monstrous moonshots that go way up in the air and land in the upper deck or land in the deep rows. But have you seen a couple like, the line drive home runs he's hit?
1: That's what I'm saying.
2: Those are frightening. Those are – because I saw one over the weekend. I think it was um, Saturday night during that, like, weird Yankees-Orioles game. He hit a line drive home run out of center field that, like, was still on its way up. When it cr- crossed the fence, like it hadn't started its descent yet, it was absolute insanity.
1: That you, I need to see him in the all run derby. That's how I'm gonna close this.
2: That and, and just the way—I mean, I—I I said it already, so I'll—I'll I'll cut it after this. But the way he swings the bat, and when he really makes contact, you know so quickly. If you haven't seen it on the Ringer, which is one of my one of my sites I check daily. Um, I think it was Roger Sherman, but maybe I'm getting it wrong. So apologies if I am put up like the five best home runs Aaron Judge judges hit this year. And there was one where he absolutely cranks one into like the second deck of the left field bleachers at Yankee stadium and uh, Ken Singleton before Michael K can even get the call out of his mouth just goes, Oh, like, and it was, it was so pure and not like performative that I, I watched it like five times to the point where my girlfriend was like, why do you keep watching that clip? And I said to her, just the guy, like the guy's reaction is proof enough of what a freak of nature Aaron Judge is. So I'll leave it at that. I'm sure that's enough Aaron Judge and, and Yankees love for, for one podcast. But we'll, we'll talk at length about him at some point, hopefully get Jack Curry back on to talk about him because I, I can't get enough of just even the, like the GIFs and the Vines, or I guess Vine is dead, but the quick videos of those home runs.
1: It's a, it's a good way, to, and it's going to be a long baseball summer, and we'll get to that once the uh, NBA and NHL playoffs wrap up. But uh, that's going to be it for Episode 1 of Season 3 of the Chip Music Podcast. The boys are back. Uh, at least the two of us. Tardiff is still on blockage. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to him. He'll get back to us eventually.
2: Lazy uh, liberal. What? Lazy liberal.
1: Yes. could not say better myself. Uh, so – with that said, we're going to wrap things up, uh, honoring ESPN, the worldwide leader, gutting their hockey program with the best sports theme song of all time. And then we'll never hear it again. So follow Tim, me on Twitter at Colby13. Follow Brendan on Twitter at Murray Sport Talk. Uh, like the Chimp Music Podcast Facebook page.
2: Yeah, and, we out here now. We're like a real thing. We
1: fan. are. We are all across social media. Follow us and keep in tune, and we'll keep churning out content. Hopefully, you don't hate.
2: Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you guys next week. Enjoy uh, enjoy your weekend.